Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to day 37 of the 7 a.m. Novelist 50-Day Writing Challenge for Strap Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. This week, we're talking about managing the awful middle ground of your book. This can be the hardest part of a process. And we're referencing a lot of kind of traditional structures over the weeks, but I really wanted to also dive into alternative structures and questioning those structures that have been handed to us. So we have helping us today, um, writers Ethan Gilsdorf and Christopher Boucher. Say good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Ethan is a journalist, memoirist, essayist, critic, poet, teacher, and the author of uh, Memoir, Fantasy Freaks, and Gaming Geeks. His writing has appeared basically in every not- notable newspaper you can find. Um, he's been twice named notable by the best American essays. He teaches creative writing at Grub Street in Boston, where he leads the Essay Incubator Program, which is similar to my program. He also leads writing workshops for nonprofit social justice organizations. Christopher Boucher received his MFA in creative writing from Syracuse University in 2002. He is the author of the novels How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive, Golden Delicious, and Big Giant Floating Head. Chris has the best novel titles that I have ever seen. By the way, Big Giant Floating Head was a 2019 Massachusetts Book Award finalist. Um, He is also the editor of Jonathan Latham's More Alive and Less Lonely on Books and Writers, and he's an associate professor of the practice of English at Boston College and the managing editor of Post Road Magazine. All right, guys, I wanted to start us off today with um, referencing an essay that I just saw in Lit Hub. And, and those of you, if you guys don't know the, the site Lit Hub, I mean, they have any number of wonderful um, essays and interviews um, and you know uh, excerpts from new books coming out. So it's, it's a great site um, for writers to look at. And, and one of the essays was called uh, uh, How to Go Home on resisting a very English hero's journey. And it was by Ellie Robbins. So this is kind of what we're talking about today, resisting an uh, English hero's journey, um, resisting that hero's journey story by Joseph Campbell, um, looking beyond Freitag for structures. And what Ellie Robbins basically says of the Joseph Campbell hero's journey, she says, who in this day doesn't find Campbell punchably unself-aware when he says things like, quote, not everyone has a destiny, only the hero who has plunged to touch it and has come up again with a ring. So again, we're questioning the idea of the hero who has to put himself through physical turmoil and that the only prize can be something of monetary value in particular or a ring. Um, Okay, so you guys, how are you approaching structure when you when you go into your work how do you think about even challenging some of the structures that you've been handed in um your own education or or writing or your teaching um chris why don't we start with you morning everybody thanks so much uh for this chance to talk ethan and michelle uh when michelle asked me to appear on this particular podcast i remember michelle you and i traded emails about it and i said well this is going to be an interesting one for me because, um, and probably the right one for this reason, that it was a point of crisis for me. You know, it yeah. was probably the weak spot for me when I first started writing. I, um, as Michelle, as Michelle said, I got my MFA from Syracuse, and my first novel was my thesis at Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but when I about maybe a year after I graduated from that program, I thought I had a novel, 
It right. looked like a novel and it weighed as much as a novel and it was 300 <laughs> pages. And I had the chance to show it to a really wonderful and uh, a really wonderful editor who, who, who gave it a read and said, you know, I'm excited about this, but it has no plot. Mm. And the editor said, you know, as a, this is a kind of a strange book about a talking Volkswagen. And um, and it's a, a strange book, too, because it riffs off of another book. People might know the existing book by John Muir, How to Keep Your Volkswagen Alive. So mm -hmm. I was in a little bit of soup from the get-go. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what the editor said was, as experimental or strange as a narrative might be, on a page 100, I want to know that I'm on page 100. Right. And I realized I didn't know how to craft a plot. And mm. that this is something that maybe in like the traditional workshop structure, I just didn't have a framework for. And so I kind of put myself on a plot course, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I tried all these different strategies. And what I, what, what kept occurring to me was that, you know, while I love the title of, of this podcast, this particular episode as beyond Freitag, which isn't anti-Freitag, right? It's right. not saying right. we're rejecting Freitag. It's rather for me, you know, the, the reverse check mark or the dramatic structure was not a great place to write from. What was a great place to write from was something that that editor sort of suggested in that brief comment, which was energy, right? Mm -hmm. Where does a, where does a reader put their energy and how can I keep that energy moving in the right direction? How can I keep that energy with me? And how can I, how can I remain in dialogue with the reader in a way that is not beholden to you know, I better have a climactic moment right? four fifths of the way through this. So I've always thought about it as rather than um, a product, a process issue, right? Whether or not the, the novel arcs in a traditional structure, it's a difficult place for me to write from. I've always had this uneasy relationship with narrative. And yeah. I've been kind of grateful for that because it's led me to some kind of what feel like to me kind of, you know, fresh approaches, or at least it remains kind of, you know, present on my radar screen, if that makes sense. So I guess that's yeah. where I'm starting from is this is, I, I recognize what this is doing and why it's at work. And I also can't really work from it. So I've looked for alternative ways to work. And one of those is just, where's my reader's energy and how can I, as best I can, move it or respond to it? Yeah, yeah. And I always think of, so So that reminds me first off of Ron McLean talk, use the word urgency. Um, that's what he's looking for when he's writing. And he does a lot of what's called experimental fiction as well, whatever, whatever that happens to be. Um, and then I also, uh, I also talk about, um, you know, we have structures that are handed to us, um, though a lot of them can be kind of Western structures, and we'll talk about that because there's some other structures that have been ignored or when Western writers find them, they pretend that they're new and they're actually not. Um, but in terms of structure, we have also this the basic structure of a sentence, subject, verb, object. Um, and that basic structure is very, very helpful to us. Otherwise, we're not gonna be able to communicate if we don't have that basic structure. And then of course that structure becomes more complex. There's certain rules around our sentence structure. Um, but so being able to understand the basics of sentence structure and being able to layer it on and understand basic um, rules of how to add to that basic structure, sentence structure is very helpful in terms of style. 
but it also can be very helpful in terms of um, structuring a novel. What are some of the basic structures that writers have gone to over the centuries? Um, how have they broken from them? And, and then how to kind of move beyond as well and, and to, to build on that as well. Um, Ethan, how about you? How have you kind of approached this with your work or your teaching? Well, yeah, I mean, I think, and thanks again for inviting me, Michelle. Um, it's great to be part of this. Great to be up at this hour in the morning. Yes, uh, isn't it it's great? Which is not the normal hour that I would necessarily be <laughs> conscious in speaking. So it's a challenge for me, but I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, I, I do teach nonfiction and, and write nonfiction, whether it's, you know, book length narratives or shorter, short form pieces. So perhaps my approach is, is a little bit different, but I think in some weird ways, the, the essay form has a lot more flexibility because readers don't have similar expectations yeah. uh, about what they're going to get into. You know, there's these different genres that are <clears throat> perhaps a little bit more, ex readers have a different understanding of maybe the, the breadth and, and depth of, of the genre. Whereas I think perhaps in fiction, people's go-to expectation is it's going, there's going to be a hero. There's going to be, you know, <clears throat> these various acts. There's going to be, you know, uh, a, a series of challenges this hero is going to encounter. There's going to be some kind of ultimate, you know, turning point or climax, and there's going to be some kind of resolution. All there's that kind of stuff. There's going to be the ring. There's going to be the ring, whatever that is. Um, and I think it's interesting to think that, you know, like you can have a different kind of experience that doesn't necessarily. You certainly can write an essay or a memoir with that structure in mind. You know, that there's primarily, I think, first-person memoirs are a good example of this. You're telling a life story. It's very similar to what you mm -hmm. do in a novel, but there's a lot more opportunities to interpose other things perhaps do you know parallel plot lines kind of intersecting opportunities to sort of adopt different forms that may not be the kinds of forms or the kinds of even voices that you would expect to see um in in, in memoirs so in, in my classes we talk a lot about this idea of you know you can write in the tradition of a narrative kind of uh journey piece where we have a character who confronts challenges and overcomes them and there are various, you know, climactic moments that are dramatic that you as the writer want to kind of spend time on and slow the pace down on and really bring us through. And then ultimately, you know, the, 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 the protagonist or you in your essay or your memoir, you know, has changed. You know, there's some kind of transformative moment. Um, but that's not the only possibility, right? We can try to collage things together, right? We can have different sort of uh, A, B, A, B patterns where there might be a single plot line that is interposed with other material that might mm -hmm. be a secondary plot line. It might be a um, research, it, you know, it could be diary entries. It could be some kind of found object. It might be something that resembles more of a collage where there's five or 10 different elements, almost like a mosaic. And the reader's job is to kind of make sense, make their own connections between these things. And it doesn't resemble, you know, the fray tag, like we get to the certain point where we know things are changing and then we, um, you know, sort of understand that something will have changed and we sort of come to understand what that, the, de, the denouement, right? Which I was always mm -hmm. pleased to learn that denouement means unknotting, right? Or untying yeah. the knot. You've created a knot and now you're untying the knot. Um, uh, which curiously was not Freytag's uh, vocabulary, right? Because he, right. Wasn't, he wasn't French. Uh, <laughs> but in any case, uh, <laughs> uh, and I was also interested to learn as I was doing a little more reading about this, that his, his conception was not, resolution it was catastrophe mm. which i thought was interesting because i think in his mind this was a this was a useful structure for tragic 
narratives where the there's a sort of final irony where like the character like Romeo and Juliet, right? It ends in, you know, utter, you know, catastrophe in some ways. Whereas so I that think- That kind of goes back to Aristotle. I mean, he yeah, talks about- exactly. it's, it's the destruction of the persona at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. And I think we have come to, uh, it's been, I don't know if it's through, through creative writing classes or literature classes, it's been come to mean sort of transformation in a good way, a resolution of the, the conflict and the, and, and the kind of the climax. So it's, I think it's interesting to think that, you know, we can, in my classes, we talk about this a lot. You can have that experience, or perhaps your experience is just bringing the reader through a series of ideas or meditations that still explore some central heat. We call it like, what's the radioactive core of this essay or this memoir? What is the thing that you're trying to explore? But it doesn't only have to be explored through, through plot, right? Or right. events or scenes. It can be explored intellectually, emotionally. It can be explored lyrically. It can be explored in these other ways um, that, that maybe resemble other things like hermit crab essays that might resemble lists or might resemble instructions or might remember some other, sorry, resemble some other form that mm-hmm. still, that still provides a structure and you yeah. can still st- tell stories within that structure, but you're not following through on the stuff that, you know, I think we, we as a culture have become very accustomed to, right? Cause we watch serialized television on Netflix. There's a very familiar feeling. That's why Vonnegut talks about why Cinderella, Cinderella works so well, right? It's a very, pleasing structure it, it works it, it's it's very pleasing to experience it to write it and that's why there's anyone. that's why there's 800 forms of cinderella in, in yes, all various right, retellings right. um and so something that you mentioned too is that no matter what you need a structure <laughs> um yes. and that might be one that you are borrowing from others and trying to use and build upon or that you are you are creating completely anew um but when i when i taught poetry i would have all sorts of students who really wanted to write freeform poetry which is great um but they were really rebelling against some of the the fun structures that we talked in class which is which is great but understanding that you then need to create your own structure. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, you know, it's not free form, you know, you, you then have the responsibility of doing double the work sometimes. Yeah. Um, and Ethan, I love bringing you in from memoir and essay because I think looking at these other genres is, is very, very helpful. And the line between fiction and nonfiction has also been blurred of late. Um, we have auto fiction, we have writers like Rachel Cusk and Glassgard who are completely um, abandoning the idea of the novel and questioning um, its importance and questioning what it is. Um, And Chris, you also, so your big breakthrough with your most recent novel is also highly personal and it's a very personal novel. And, but you were completely a fiction writer. Did you ever consider because it it was coming from such a personal place of approaching it as, as not fiction or did you always just go fiction whole hog? You know, that's that I sort of tricked myself into that with that, mm-hmm. with that book that, that, so this book, the, the narrators or the, the main character, the narrators is, is it has my name. Right. You no. Know, yeah. And I, a lot of those started as a lot of the chapters started as standalone pieces. And then I thought, well, what happens if, if I take on that persona, you know, but the way that I thought about it, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking as we're talking here about um, a book I'm betting a lot of people who are listening know, which is um, Meander, Spiral and Explode or Meander, yes. Spiral, Explode, Jane Allison's book, which uh, I didn't have the privilege of being able to read because it wasn't written yet when I was right. Oh, there it is. Right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Allison talks a lot about um, alternative structures and forms, but talks about those as organic responses to nature essentially right like they're forms that are found in nature um 
when I was writing that book, I remember thinking, well, okay, and I talked about this with my editor at the time, this isn't going to work like a normal novel. You know, the every chapter kind of resets. It gives, it has a different sensibility, a little bit of a different world, different problems, a, you know, a different reality. And so I sort of thought of it, I'm not a basketball player, but uh, of of how I understand the pivot in basketball, right? That like you can keep one foot in place, you can move in, you know, you, and then you can kind of move in one direction and then you can go back to the, go back to your footing. And every time I did so, and another, another, another model for this for me that I would like actually draw as I was writing that book was, I don't know if we remember those stencil sets, at least when I was a kid, I used to have those stencil sets where yeah. you, you could draw circles over and over and over again. And it would make this beautiful sort of I picture this kind of flower shape in red pen, you know, and I thought, well, all of these concentric circles or all these circles outside of the center are these loops of the chapters. And each one of them is somehow strengthening a center. So I, I, in answer to your question, Michelle, I think I was um, kind of delighted by and scared by the nonfiction fiction boundary there, you know, what is true and what is fiction yeah. And trying and trying to work with that tension, but trying to do so structurally. You know, I mean, I in in each of my novels, I've been lucky to kind of trip into a structure and then to adopt that structure and say, okay, what happens if, you know, this is what happens if 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 this doesn't work necessarily linearly, but it works radially, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and you've also talked about that you found you talked about that you were in a crisis when you were, when you launched onto your last novel. Um, and was that, was that crisis about, did, did that crisis allow you just to, I guess, not give a fuck and just do what you needed to do to get the energy on the page? I mean, what was that? So that again, came from something very personal. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, I th- I'm sure that a lot of us do this when we're in the midst of the novel journey, because it is such a long journey, right? Where yeah. we start to kind of uh, develop a coaching system for ourselves. And I was really lucky. That was with my first novel. And the first novel, you know, is this strange book about a talking Volkswagen. And I, what I kept thinking of was what it's like to open the hood of a, to open the back engine compartment of a, of a Volkswagen and how the machine works. And so I kept thinking instead of, let's say dramatic structure, what if this is essentially an explication of the machine, right? What if over the course of the novel, you know, we could choose a number of metaphors, the fog lifts, something that's not clear becomes clear. Um, You know, the machine, we know how the machine runs, right? Which luckily for me, I had this great crutch or this great assistance, which was this existing structure that I could kind of riff off of and build off of, but, right. but I ended up adopting a little bit of a diff, of a different metaphor or a different narrative in my mind to replace the one I felt beholden to, which was the, the dramatic structure, right? Because right. I think as, as Jane Allison suggests, if we start to think organically about this, it doesn't always apply, right? It doesn't always speak to the human experience, the way that other forms in nature do the way that, you know, I have a quote pulled up from that. She quotes Ronald Sukunik as saying form is your footprints in the sand when you look back. Right. And I thought at least that grounds us to um, the relationship between form and, you know, experience. Right. I also want to recommend uh, Matthew Salisi's uh, novel or novel craft book, Craft in the Real World, because what he does is he takes all of our 
assumptions about basic craft terms and ideas. And he uh, just reviews them again, kind of undoes them. Um, and then he also goes into a reminder of how some very important structures have come from other cultures. Um, and, and so it's just, it's just a brilliant kind of um, breaking apart of some of our assumptions and some of the things that we think, oh, I must do this or I must do that or I must think of it this way. So again, that's Matthew Solis's uh, craft in the real world. And I was gonna have him on or wanted to have him on, but he has to do with his kids at 7 a.m. in the morning. So we'll get him on in another time. Um, Ethan, so Ethan, you have done poetry. You've also written short stories, I think, as well. So you've done all of these forms. Um, Not always successfully, but... <laughs> well, and I, I early on turned my back on poetry because I was like, I'm just no good at that. And, and apparently Faulkner did too. So I was like, well, okay, Faulkner did it. I can do it too. <laughs> um, uh, tell me, like, did you ever, in your process you know, trying to, to experiment with the different forms, did you ever feel this pressure of, of, of having to write in a certain way or having to, to follow again a certain form and, and then allowing yourself to break from that? Or do you see that in your students that they feel that they have to write in a certain mm -hmm. way or a certain form and then what you give them to allow them to, to break from that? Or maybe yeah. you haven't felt those. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have in, in, in one project, it was uh, a more current I think somewhat abandoned fiction project. I felt very much, um, it's actually a young adult novel. It was not entirely sure whether it was a young adult novel or whether it was a, a middle grade novel and partly reflected my own ignorance of the genres. But I felt like that was an example where I felt like I was writing something that clearly had a, had a template out there in the marketplace of what should happen in that kind of book. In fact, received some very specific instruction, like in this kind of, in a middle grade thing, this kind of thing should happen. And the story should look like this. In a young adult thing, it's a very different story, and here's what that should look like. And that may be very well be true, but it, it I found that I found that expectation to be frustrating, and I re it revealed my own lack of, I think, skill in being able to conform to this. I don't know that that's really the way I, I, I would be able to write. I'm sure if I spent more time, I could I could spend uh, you know I could study it better. And I think that was probably one of the lessons I learned from that project was that yes, I could probably get better at this if I if I really studied this form about what happens to this, you know, 12 year old protagonist or 16 year old protagonist. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like in my classroom, particularly in the realm of nonfiction, that I do challenge my students to, to try other, other forms because I think the go-to is a sort of very traditional narrative form that, that they would, they would be absorbing through all of these different ways in which we're absorbing memoir, I'm sorry, absorbing narratives now, whether it is a written memoir, a written, sorry, I keep saying that, a written narrative like uh, a novel, or whether it's increasingly, you know, movies and, and, and television. I use that as a, yeah, as a sort of analog a lot. And I think that students are really delighted when they realize that that's not the only way. I, I, I that's not the only option available to me in my toolkit. I can write something that resembles. I love the idea, Chris, that you're, which I want to pick up your book about the 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 Volkswagen guide, because I feel like that's, that's that sort of hermit crab form or that borrowed form idea is such a revelation to so many of my students. And they realize, well, yes, I could write this as a straight, straight ahead narrative with sort of scenes and sort of, you know, things happening in, in, in sequence sort of time, what I call like time intention. Like there's things that happen over the course of time. And there's various moments when the reader is feeling tension, right? And that tension usually relates to when the protagonist is at the crisis point, right? And then there's relief, right? Mm -hmm. And then we go back into sort of a place of tension. 
right. and that happens over course of t- over a trajectory of time, right? Either it's narrated chronologically, or you can cut up the narrative and start this start later in the story and then flash back, and you know, and even that still relies on a kind of time intention experience. But there's other possibilities, right? You can you could have the part of the experience of of reading is yes, stuff is happening to characters, but also it's this delight of how a form does and doesn't um, adhere to the expectations of what it is you've set it out to be, right? So we have something that looks like a how-to guide or a travel guide that sort of resembles the original form and sort of resembles this personal narrative. And there's ways in which it very much adheres to, adheres to it. And that's like, oh, isn't it clever? But then it departs from it, but then it returns to it. So there's, you've laid out the structure that both cre- creates a sense of expectation that the reader knows like here are my pl- my flags in the sand right like, yeah. i kind of know what i'm looking at here i'm not completely confused i'm not spending all my time just like figuring out what is this thing i recognize what it is and i get the joke as it were but it's more than just a you know one trick pony because it keeps um there's variations on there right that are delightful and surprising and, and that can be s- something that i think a lot of beginning writers assume that their main goal is to tell an amazing story yeah it could also be this other thing you can do with language, with form that can equally be delightful and appeal to maybe different parts of our, of our brains, you know, or yeah. our, Excellent. And, and, and can be in its, in its own way, a form of elevation. I'm thinking about yesterday's podcast. And uh, I think during that podcast, Donald Bartolome's The School was mentioned. And yes. when I listened to that, I thought of, I thought of Bartolome and alternative structures. And Ethan, you mentioned a list you know, yeah. early on today. And I was thinking of the glass mountain, right? And so when you're, I think this might be part of what you're speaking to, Ethan, which is when you're reading that, you're kind of reading against, uh, almost against Freitag or almost against what you expect as a dramatic structure because this new structure it creates its own form of elevation just by being something different, just by operating. It's a different sort of machine. You right. know, and you're, you're reading and thinking, well, what? And, and so w- there are a number of narratives when you think about it that, that are uh, either built on a loop or built on a list, mm. you know, and or built on the, the notion of, of exhaustion, right? The notion that they're going to take a concept. And I was teaching Borges yesterday to my students at Boston College and uh, several of, the, of, of, of his stories, I thought, were took a concept and seemed to loop through it en route to exhausting it. You know, mm. and that itself, you, you know, w- within that structure, you're reading for something. But for me, I'm also reading it thinking, how is this operating? Because it's not operating according to the way that 90% of what I read operates, you know, and that I think is a form of elevation or is a form of tension. Yeah, yes. I was thinking of the of the memoir, Joan Wickersham's memoir, The Suicide Index, you know, so the, the, the memoir takes the form of a fictitious index. In each entry is meant to be sort of an anecdote or a scene or a reflection on something that would have appeared in the, in, the, in the index of a book that doesn't exist. You're just looking at this sort of annotated index. It's the same idea, right? You have this sort of structure that's been created that creates a sense of uh, expectation and each variation on it, you know, sort of enhances or, or sort of uh, magnifies this idea that you've kind of, you've kind of established at the beginning. So the important thing I too think is that, so what we're seeing in the chat are some questions about like, if I, if my novel or if my work deviates from traditional structures, 
Do I have to explain that in a query letter to my agent? Or um, I write for young people and I find the expectations about structure restrictive. And so I think the key there for both of those questions is to read as much as possible, to look at what others are doing in terms of structure and form, um, and to be able to kind of have that those tools of that ammunition with you when you talk about your work and make reference to, because a lot of these, some of these structures have been around for a very, very long time. Um, I think also of the, uh, the Japanese structure, it's also used in Chinese and Korean uh, literature and poetry called Kisho Tenkechu, um, which is basically also what Magna stories are, are built on. It's a four part structure, introduction, development, twist, resolution. And you also see that in, in a lot of um, graphic novels as well. Um, so there are a lot of people in, in contemporary writing and modern writing that are borrowing from these other structures. Um, and also they, some of them look like rock stars doing it because they're like, oh, look what they're doing. This is amazing. When again, these are very traditional structures from other forms. So I would read as much as possible to uh, get an understanding of, of what you can do, of what other writers can do, so that when you talk about your work, you're able to make references, or at least you're able to be more assured that other writers are doing these things and other writers are breaking across these, these expectations. Um, okay, um, we're gonna have to go. <laughs> Uh, Chris and Ethan, I'm just so glad to have had you on. We could have talked about this for a very, very long time. Um, if you are uh, listening to our podcast, I'm also going to post a German fairy tale called The Rosebud. And it's a very short fairy tale uh, that Kate Bernheimer puts in her uh essays on fairy tales. And it works with intuitive logic. And if you read it, it's only a paragraph. Um, and if you read it, you'll get a little shiver of how it works because it is breaking all of these forms in terms of cause and effect, in terms of rise and fall, in terms of all of this. So I'm gonna put that in the uh, show notes of the, of the podcast and you can find it there. Um, otherwise tomorrow, uh, come back with us and we are going to be talking about the dramatic question with writers John McClure and Christine Murphy and thinking about the dramatic question in ways that are again, what's the usual use of the dramatic question? What are ways that we can kind of undermine or, or move beyond the expectations of the dramatic question? Um, so that is tomorrow. And you can also find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. And it's very helpful if you rate and review and follow our podcast. You can find that basically anywhere on Spotify and elsewhere. Okay, I'm going to start talking because you guys need to get to your desk. And thank you again, Chris and Ethan. And I hope everyone has a fabulous writing day and is able to get so much work done today. Thank you so much.